listening to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention. I'm Tom Hammond, uh, your host and co-founder of UserWise. Um, here with me, uh, we have Remy Spanger, who is currently managing director of the games division for Hypo Hippo. Hyper Hippo? Hyper Hippo. I can say it right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Today is going to be a special episode for me, actually, um, because I've been doing game monetization for like eight years now. And that's really kind of how I got into the industry. Um, But we've never really done an episode dedicated to monetization. And so we're going to spend a lot of time kind of digging in today. So uh, take out your, your notepads and uh, get ready. Hopefully we can provide some uh, amazing insights. But before we do, uh, Rumi, I always just kind of like to say, you know, what's your story? How did you get here, um, you know, to, to where you are and how did you get to, to working in games? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I think it's kind of the classic silly story. Uh, so my plan was to be an unemployed writer. Uh, and then the day that I graduated from uh, from college, um, a friend of mine saw a Craigslist ad for a uh, a writing narrative position at a games company, which is Clipwire Games, which is now doing fairly well for itself. Um, so yeah, uh, I was lucky enough to get my foot in the door there, um, which is rare. You know, it's not a lot of games, especially free to play <laughs> games, that are actually looking for content writers. Um, but yeah, within a couple of months, I actually kind of learned what game design was. I learned that it was a real thing uh, and kind of became obsessed with it. Uh, so that ended up just being the whole direction of my career from that point on, which was trying to design games, trying to learn how monetization works, retention. Uh, you know, I, I basically, because it's like that classic indie environment, I got to do a little <laughs> bit of everything, you know, running store pages, building my own UA campaigns, uh, working on Fatui funnels. Um and yeah, basically kind of just followed that uh, through my career. So after that, I went to Gameloft as a uh, social and retention specialist, uh, worked for there a few t- uh, years, then ended up in uh, EA for roughly three years um, on one massive, massive project. <laughs> um, and yeah, kind of got my hands into everything. So, you know, the, a lot of the system design for the project, got to try my hand at um, deeper economy and game balancing that I've never been a part of. And then finally, that led me to Hippo, um, where I had a wacky, a wacky kind of career. Um, again, started off basically just leading a team as a senior designer, kind of owning a product, uh, but based on different opportunities, hopped back into the production space, which I've done on and off. Uh, I ran a venture capitalist for a while. Uh, and then, yeah, eventually this kind of position opened up and uh, Hippo is kind of a special place, especially in this industry in terms of how we treat each other, how we like to work, um, you know, actually caring about work-life balance, a lot of really great stuff. So saw an opportunity to help kind of maintain that culture while also cool growth opportunities for myself. Um, so yeah, so now we're working on many, many projects. Um, I'm different levels of involved in each one. Uh, but yeah, uh, throughout the years, I've kind of fallen in love with trying to <laughs> add formal rules and stuff, just just more 
real science to game design. A lot of people just kind of design with their gut. I respect that. I think it's necessary. Uh, but I also think that it's really helpful to have that counterbalance of someone who's going to help you maximize things, maximize retention, mm -hmm. maximize monetization, especially monetization with a lot of new designers trying to shy away from because <laughs> it, it seems bad. Um, but yeah, it's good to have someone who is there to basically give you a set of rules or a set of goals or a set of yeah. KPIs, whatever it is. And that tends to be my place. I love it. So, so you worked at Gameloft for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. Now, did you go through there? Because I find that, you know, many of the very best game economy designers, and most of them aren't economy designers anymore, but something about Gameloft, man, they, they I don't know if it's like a training program or something, but their game economists that they churn out are crazy. Now, did you get trained there or did you kind of learn on the fly when you were at EA? Uh, yeah, uh, so I worked with uh, a, a good friend, uh, Dave Andrzejak, uh, and he, you know, had a master's degree in economy. So he was actually teaching me how actual economies worked. And uh, yeah, that was definitely the baseline of my education. Is because I was focused on retention. He was focused on economy. Those are essentially the same systems in a lot of way, right? It's it's determining session behavior, how players interact with the system. So yeah, just kind of, I feel like GameLoft. It's not just even economy, I'd say. Uh, Gameloft is one of the best places to learn in the industry. I know a lot of people have some challenges with with the with the studio, like many people do in, in every studio. <laughs> um, but you get this wide, broad range of, of games, and you also get these turbo specialists. So I also got kind of my introductory education to proper monetization and spend exhaustion <laughs> and sale. All that stuff was there. So it was uh, it's actually a cool place if you're going to learn and you can get a job at Gameloft, uh, do it because, yeah, you will come out with like a degree in, in game development. I love it. Yeah, my I think my other uh, favorite company is uh social point and mm. i don't know i don't know about the complete picture but man do they crank out people that are just like data oriented and able to just like <laughs> dig into the details and come up with these crazy insights but uh yeah. no that's that's awesome i i interviewed with social point for the record and it's like the only interview in my career that i absolutely blew to such an incredible <laughs> degree so i'm going to credit it to just their incredibly high standards uh, and it was a very embarrassing moment for myself but i'm now sharing with a lot of people yeah here you are you still made it <laughs> so who knows maybe social point will contact you after the podcast and you know <laughs> embarrass myself again i love it yeah yeah just really humble humble myself out <laughs> Oh, I love it. So you did at, at Hippo, you know, a bit of design work, and then you kind of went to creative director before like jumping up. Um, yep. You know, I feel like creative director is kind of like a nebulous title. Mm -hmm. um, what does that actually mean? Because I feel like at different studios, it can mean a lot of different things. Yeah. Uh, and I think everyone's got horror stories as well. So part, <laughs> part of the benefits is I, I, you know, I worked with and really liked and respect the other designers that I worked with. And we'd all had these stories. So we had a pretty good picture, I think, as a group of exactly who we didn't want me to be, which was helpful. <laughs> um, so I'll give a couple examples. Yeah, I think some of the worst thing a creative director can ever be, unless it's something that they've called out and they've, everyone agrees is what they're going to be, is just another designer on the project with way too much authority. That's a, that's a nightmare. It is, okay, we're all in the room and we all have good ideas, but one person's ideas are like, prioritizing as everyone else. And I've been in that environment and it's, it's dangerous and it's really, really depressing. Um, there's other people who are like genuinely on that creative side. I like to kind of draw up uh, an interesting connection. There's like, it's almost like there's a creative director and there's a creative director. <laughs> it's a little bit different how you don't interact with them. Um, so 
one person might want to come in and be like, no, this is the feel of the game. And this is the vibe we're trying to create. And this is the atmosphere. And this is like, you know, uh, the storyboard and the mood boards. And they'll really try to give you guidelines and, and kind of establish what that creative looks like. And then there's the other side, which I think I gravitate a little bit more towards, which is, you know, I've got an incredible team. My job is to basically help get the most out of them. So it's kind of dire literally directing their creativity. It's like, okay, cool. You've got something awesome. What do you think is the best part of your game? What is the part of your game you want to lean into that is at the core that we should never change? How do we take that, maximize it? And then once we have something that's fun and addictive, how do we start building a product around it? That's, that's my approach. Um, but it's also, it is my desperate rule to never design a thing myself <laughs> uh, to avoid that kind of trap of just being the loudest voice in the room. That's awesome. That's, yeah, I love that. Okay. So let's talk about monetization. Why is monetization important? Boy, uh, I mean, well, yeah, there's the, <laughs> there's a lot of things. I mean, there's the, the really practical uh, reason is it's basically how you keep your, your games running. And it's also um, the largest determining factor in how long a game is going to run or how big it can get as, you know, especially with free to play our industry is so heavily driven by user acquisition. So if you're going to know nothing else about monetization, uh, you need to know that fundamentally you're always with every free to play game doing a comparison of the cost to acquire a player and the value of that player. And as long as the value is higher than the cost, a game tends to grow or at least sustain. And when that ratio swaps, it tends to be when a game is, uh, is on a downward trajectory. So aside all the, <laughs> the more practical fundamentals of this is why money is good. Um, yeah, for, for a game, it's basically determines um, often the potential scope of their success. Um, and yeah, even frankly, like the more money you make from a game as well, the better you're going to be able to develop it and service it and, and build on it. So it is the lifeblood of your, of your product for sure. Now, if I was a brand new game designer, let's say I just graduated and came out of college, because at least my experience is most college programs don't touch on monetization and you kind of come <laughs> out and it's just this like dirty word and I don't want to think about it or touch it. Like, let me just make my game you know, what would you say to that person? What would you say to me? Oh, for sure. And then I have given this speech before. Um, so the first thing I'd say is, especially if you're in free to play, and I'm, I, can I just safely assume that we're contextualizing all this in free to play? Is that, I think, I think we're going to say this is all free to play. You okay. know, pre premium games, you pretty much get your upfront fee, which you can still add stuff after the fact, but you know, we'll just assume free to play. Perfect. Now that makes all these, <laughs> all these points shorter. Um, but yeah, I mean, the first thing I'd say is to, to recognize that, you know, if you have any kind of nervousness around spend and, you know, to some extent we all just no, our, I want to make games. I want to entertain people. I want them to play something that's awesome. Um, think of it as complimentary in a lot of ways, right? Like put aside again, the practical side of what well, we need money to live and look at it more from the, if you've made a game that people love so much, they want to spend money on it. Like to me, that's like pretty much the greatest achievement you can have. Um, and I'm, and I don't mean in games, I mean, in the world, like uh, our entire lives are taught to get free stuff, go get free stuff. You, Oh, buy one, get one free or go here and we'll give you this free stuff. Or, you know, it's why like the whole torrent pirate industry exists because everyone's life is around trying to get as much for your bank for your buck as you possibly can. So if you're giving people a free product and they want to pay for it, that's a very rare thing. And it's a special thing. And it's, it's actually, 
it's something that should make you feel great and should also inform uh, how you approach monetization. It's like, it, it's really sad in some of the games and I don't name too many names, but you know, it's, it's, there are some people do try to bleed their players dry or they get one giant purchase or they push them away. Some of them have that method where like, after you've made a purchase, they only show you higher and higher uh, price points, for instance. And it's all about this relatively dark methodology about getting the absolute most out of a person with little care about the value of those purchases. Um, so that's what I would say is don't be afraid of it. It's a good thing. It's your players telling you that you've made something great. Um, and then, yeah, try to make sure that fundamentally, and this is actually an underappreciated thing, after a person spends, it should be the best time they've ever played your game. That should be what you're striving for. Like a, a paying player should be like, I am, I'm actually buying a better experience. I enjoy this game more. I feel rewarded. And that's going to determine ultimately what, whether they spend again, whether they keep playing. It's because ideally you've given them like a taste of the best version of your product. That's what I love, I'd say from a dude, I, I love that. Yeah. You know, um, thinking about my spending habits um, and Specifically, I'm going to talk about Clash of Clans for a little bit because it's an interesting case where um, now I never spent like this. Also, probably because about that time I was, you know, recent college grad, first job, still quite poor. Um, and, uh, you know, I was like, I'm not going to drop 20 bucks on this free game when I could, you know, spend $20 and get the whole Diablo 2 LOD chest and play that for hours, that 20, 20 bucks, like, you know, goes like this, yep. those gems. Um, but uh, I remember talking to uh, a few friends and they're like, you know, when I first started playing Clash of Clans, like it was great. Like I could spend a hundred dollars a week and I get all this stuff and I could like upgrade my base, like all together. And it was just like the greatest thing in the world. And then they're like, yeah, but, you know, a year or two ago, I just stopped spending altogether because, you know, I would spend the same amount and that hundred bucks would like buy me like a single archer tower. And it was like, it's just not worth it anymore. And I think that's a very interesting example. If you think about the idea of like, after you spend should be the greatest time in the game, right? It should yep. make the game even more fun. And I think it did in Clash of Clans early on, right? Oh, yep, I get to absolutely. upgrade all these things. And now suddenly it's like, I spend this stuff and it's, oh, that's it. It's no <laughs> longer, it's no longer the greatest thing in the game. Right. Um, now yeah. I, I do think that they fixed it some within the context of, you know, the, the gold pass and different things like they've leveled it out a little bit, made it still a pleasant experience to spend and stuff. Um, but it's just very interesting to think through. Um, I recently started playing Magic the Gathering Arena, um, which is fun because I haven't played Magic since I was, you know, like 15 years old. And man, I was so poor back then. You know, I'd <laughs> scrape together enough to like buy a pack and then I'd have to like swindle people with trades to like make cobble together some sort of deck. Um, but, you know, now that I actually have some money and I can spend stuff, I like I, I design my deck and then I, you know, spent money until I actually like built the deck. And now it's the greatest thing ever because it's an awesome deck. And so I'm just, you know, having a great time with the game. So yes, I will probably spend again to make another awesome deck in the future. It's just mm -hmm. just a super interesting idea to think about. Um, but when I, you know, talk to people about monetization, and I think the, the first thing that I talk about when you're struggling with this idea of like, oh, I, I want to be nice to players and things like that. You know, I, I always bring it back to, okay, we make games 
but games is a business. As mm-hmm. much as that maybe hurts to say, people have lives. We have expenses. We have rent. We have family. We have spouses. We have kids. You know, all of those things take money to be able to provide for. And that money has to come from somewhere. And if we're spending all our time making games, we need to get something back such that we can take care of our lives. And hopefully it's enough that we can continue to make games um, <laughs> and not have to go and, you know, get a real job or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so, you know, I always kind of bring that back of like, that's the fundamental importance of monetization. And I think that most players actually understand that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's great. And I think you, you get the right player base and the right communication. It's like, yeah, I, I realized that I need to watch some ads to support you guys or make some purchases. Um, and I think that the more that players get engaged in a game, the more that you're giving them, the more that they're willing to give back. Like if I've played a game for a thousand hours and I haven't spent anything, like I, I feel almost obligated to give something back. You know, <laughs> this, this game gave me so much like pleasure and joy, you know, take some yeah. money. Um, our, our industry is so funny with that, right? Cause it is, it is both sides. Cause I have heard that same speech that ended entirely differently in terms of like, yeah, I've played this 2000 hours, never spent a cent. And it's this like badge <laughs> of achievements. Like, wow. Yeah, I'm sure that I'm sure that company really appreciates that. It's a it's a funny thing because you have um, and, and I won't say only, but it feels like the only industry that doesn't want to admit it's an industry, which is such a wacky thing to be in. Like I've I've heard multiple CEOs have to like apologize for making money. Like people are like, oh, how come every time we make a change, it feels like we're trying to make more money? It's like, yeah, <laughs> that's that is to some extent true, um, but it's also partly to contextualize that it's because money is just one of the metrics by which we measure success. Um, and, you know, sometimes there's retention changes and all these, these like secondary metrics, but in a lot of ways, those are also fundamentally about making more money. So it, it's a tough one to have both players and the people working with you uh, treating it like it's this kind of thing. We're not supposed to talk about, we're all, we're all here, but we want to pretend we're not really here. And, and these aren't really our jobs, but we certainly want to get paid for them. It's a, it's a very wacky, uh, system to be a part of for sure. Yeah. I don't know. I think a lot of it comes down to monetization design. You know, mm-hmm. if I think about the idea of, I don't know, let, let's take uh, call of duty Warzone. They make most of their money selling what, like cosmetic upgrades and stuff that make the game maybe more fun for some people to play it. Mm-hmm. Um, now I, I think if, if I make, you know, in this next update, some new set of cosmetics that I think are super cool and I put them out for sale and some people buy them and I make a lot of money. It's not really a bad thing because, you know, as long as it was optional, people that bought those things are delighted with what they got and they felt like they got, you know, a good value. Like, obviously they might be angry if you try to price gouge them, but you know, if you're treating them reasonably, um, setting a reasonable value, they understand it and they still want to buy it, you know, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And, you know, some of those players, like, wow, I got this amazing mod that like 
explodes the enemy in fire when I shoot them with my dragon gun or whatever. Um, <laughs> you know, it makes the game more fun for me to play. And this is the game that I love and I play all the time. So it's now that much better. And I feel delighted that I spent that money on it. Yeah, Vanity's uh Vanity is one that I'd say it's it stands out as the mid to hardcore gaming community has accepted it to some extent. Like we all kind of tolerate it. And I'm not sure exactly how it slipped by, <laughs> to be honest. Um and, and I've I've actually heard, you know, in, in certain games like Borderlands three, people are just like going crazy about the fact that did you know there's vanity you don't have to spend for? It's you know, it's like two thousand four again and it's <laughs> it's funny. Um but it's also yeah, it's kind of nice, right? Because I think, frankly, if you want to put any two two purchases contrasting each other, like vanity versus pay to win, I think are like the on almost the ultimate opposite ends of the spectrum. And I think pay to win in a lot of ways is what started, especially at least for the midcore community, mm-hmm. um, this kind of negative outlook. Because yeah, if someone wants to just dress up and put on some cosplay, okay, you look like a stormtrooper. Life is awesome, right? Like there's not a lot of like, you can tease people, but it's not like the same as oh, you know, we're playing this game together. This guy spent $100, and now he's just going to defeat me every single time. And there there are games that literally, like, I, I got to burn them slightly a bit, but yeah, like Game of War was specifically <laughs> about cultivating a bunch of people to be bullied by spenders. That was the only way their game model worked, is like, if you spent money on it, you were <laughs> numerically more powerful <laughs> and could just just trash everyone who wasn't willing to spend. And like that's the kind of thing that I think has scared people and pushed them away. Um, and I think competition is likely the 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 root cause of that. Like, because if paying to progress, it, it's hard to really care that much that someone has spent to get like a little bit farther down you on like on a dotted line. But if someone can actually make your experience worse because they were willing to spend money on it, <laughs> that uh, is not really accepted by community and, and fair and fairness, rightly so. Uh, yeah, it, it's interesting. But you know, if you talk to the spenders in Game of War, they actually like the pay to win mechanic, and I, I think that's partly why you need to take the approach in my opinion of really deeply understanding your target audience when you're developing the game from day one um and monetization should be a key part of that um so you know if i'm making a game of war style game my target audience is those people that like the pay to win mechanic then maybe I should have that in there. Maybe I can counterbalance that with some other aspects and things like that to, to offset it or something. But, um, you know, that could be the audience that I'm going for. Now, on the flip side, uh, I do know that some games have tried to transition of like, oh, p- players are complaining that it's pay to win. And we've got all these people that aren't spending um, because they don't believe in that. Um, I'm going to choose to change to get away from pay to win. And if I'm following strictly a data-driven mentality metrics it's gonna hurt in the near term when i like Mm -hmm. take away that pay to win stuff Um, i have to believe that in the long term more of those people are everyone's gonna spend more equally and more evenly but it's gonna hurt for a while you know financially and stuff as i kind of make that leap of faith with the belief that you know if i can cater to more of these people that also love my game and give them things that are less pay to win that they're willing to spend on um but it's a, it's a hard balance, I think. Yeah, and I mean, there's different approaches to it. Um, and I think almost all of them are going to end up with some group of players being kind of alienated. So, um, I mean, as a for instance, I do strongly believe in, you know, time-rich players versus uh, money-rich players, which is basically what you're describing. Like, I was 16 and I had to, I was time-rich. So I spent a lot of time doing these trades and trying to like, you essentially were grinding your way up, right? By comparison to someone who just had a bunch of money, uh, but works all day, 
and then they just come home and they buy 30 packs and they're fine right so i think something about that gaming relationship is very fair where it's like I so often I'm old enough now and busy enough that so often I'll play a free-to-play game. Like, where is the I'm an adult purchase? I just want to make the one I'm an adult purchase that gives me the stuff I need so I can enjoy this game five minutes a day and not have to play 13 hours. And like I think the challenge is is that has to be to some extent to your to use your words, a balanced ratio. So if the idea is like you can get anything by engagement that you can get through uh paying, that you're fine. Um, I think that's fair, but it also has to be smoothly compared. Like if you can make purchases in a day and it takes me a month to save them up, then that's pay to win. Like there's no way I can ever catch up to you. Like it's it's irrelevant to even play. I feel like my time isn't worth it. Um, and the funny thing is it like, it makes the purchases feel even better because you know, you just bought a month worth of play. Um, <laughs> so that's the tricky one. It's like, yeah, you can definitely account for those problems, but then you're finding the person who doesn't have much time and doesn't have much money. And he may as well never play your game again. So you're always kind of putting someone on the outskirts. That's great. So what's your take, you know, if you were working on a new game today, you know, Mm -hmm. how would you kind of start designing the monetization and what that looks like? Yeah, for sure. And there's a, there's a lot of ways and and different, different approaches to building out that model. Um, But to me, it has to be integrated. Whatever you're dealing with um, is is the most fundamental part for me. So whatever those outcomes look like, whether you want to dive into loot boxes or you want to dive into pay to progress, whatever those things are, it has to be a thing that people encounter throughout their gameplay. Um, way too often, I'd say one of the biggest mistakes I see is people like, I built my game and it's fun and I have no idea how to monetize it. And then if it works, then I'm going to figure out how to monetize. It's like, don't do that to yourself. Not only will it make your life harder, but your players will notice and they will dislike it. Um, so the most common problem I see is like, we've built this game. Now let's see if we can throw loot boxes on it. It's like, well, now your loot boxes are optional. People never interact with them. They don't learn to open them. They don't have a reason to open them. And you're just kind of trying to paste that model on top. But if to continue the analogy, you used loot boxes in your normal play and then sold more of them. Like uh, Archero was great. It's like every time you play, you're getting new equipment. And if you want better equipment, you just open another chest and there's a little box, like a little button that says, do you want to open another? Some of the simplest monetization out there, but it's capitalizing on existing integrated gameplay systems. So in my mind, whatever that looks like, and it's a lot deeper conversation about the different methodologies and how you're built in that framework. The most important thing is you have to have a game where you can encounter logical spend points throughout. And then that's where the player is basically making that choice of, do I pay? Do I wait? Do I grind, et cetera? How do you think about um, kind of impacting the retention with monetization? Because I feel like most people, when they you know, think about monetization, they're like, well, monetization is really, I trade my retention for making some money and I've got to like find a balance. Like, do you agree with that or is there a better way to do it? Yeah, I I think that is actually one of the most common concepts. I'll use Adventure Capitalist, one of the games that we make, uh, because it's actually an example of this that we're sad about. (laughs) It is almost impossible to fix in this sense anymore. Um, So for instance, Pay to progress is one of the best, you know, methods. It's a very soft payment method. It's like you could just keep playing, or you know, maybe you can jump ahead. Um, 
But one of the tricky things about idle games, about AdCap in particular, is if you're not paying for something new, you're not paying for a different type of content. You're just basically paying to be picked up from one point in the content and dropped into another point. Um, is it can work exactly as you just said. Because so for instance, if you play venture capitalist, if you spend on your first day and you spend almost entirely on ways to progress, you're not spending on competitive events or anything. What you're doing is you're, you're going out of that nice curated first time user experience where the pacing is so perfect and so balanced and it's setting up your sessions and we're kind of dropping you into the two week grind. So that <laughs> goes back to like <laughs> that, you know, they have to feel good to spend. It does not feel good to be like, oh, awesome. And it feels good. And that, that, you know, 30 seconds where I spent all my consumables or what have you felt awesome. And now I'm stuck in the slowest, like point of the game that I'm not like adapted to and I'm, and, and it just doesn't feel right anymore. Um, so that's that's the real stress of there. And that's where I think you get that kind of one-to-one. -one. If you're basically purchasing content and you no longer have the grind to get that content or you know, you buy 30 loot boxes or you buy 30 items or whatever that looks like, yeah, you can very well trade one for the other. Um, it's why often when you're trying to set up a game either at launch or, or what have you, you kind of want two tracks plotted out, which is like, this is when we expect an average player to get, we want multiple tracks, but for the sake of this yeah. example, <laughs> you want an average player. They're going to have three months of content. Paying players are going to have two weeks. And so how much content are you launching with? It's got to be enough that those paying players aren't basically just exhausting your content and, and hating your game. And it's, there's no simple like one word solution. It's really trying to figure out the best ways to make monetization fun and enhancing, be it like, you know, four stops lessons of, of items you purchase, or if it's about just always giving new experiences, or it's about, you know, AdCap just has so much content, it's almost fine. It's like, all right, we, we picked you in and you dropped you two weeks down because it's a play for three years, so it's fine. But not everyone has that because sometimes, you know, the cost of content is often a limiting factor. So, you know, thinking about AdCap for a second, um, would the better approach be to say, okay, we're going to optimize the first time user experience as it probably already is for my non-paying users. And then I'm going to basically make a second tract where that I spend time optimizing for everyone that comes in on day one, spends, jumps to week two. And then that week two mark, you kind of re-optimize and kind of rebuild it. Maybe like it's a segmented experience or something like that. If you can, I mean, the, the challenge is, is like the more someone spends on your game, and I mean, I don't mean necessarily the amount they spend, but the more frequently they spend or the more options they have to spend, um, that is going to be a vastly more variable experience than the person who is limited by time. Like I can say with mathematical certainty, if you play this many hours a day, this is how far you progress. But if you buy a $99 pack versus, <clears throat> pardon me, a $13 pack, that's going to completely change where you are. Like spenders won't just always be in the same spot. They're going to have enormous variability compared to the other people. They're also going to be tied to being whales and better at, at, at playing and the more hardcore players. So very tricky to do so. So I'd say that that is a thing that might work for some games, but I'd say the much safer choice, and it probably won't surprise you at all, um, is to find places where you can have isolated spend that makes sense. Um, so for instance, uh, limited time events. There's, there's many, many reasons we can get into into why those are so successful. But from a game developer standpoint, uh, one of the best parts of them is you cannot spend yourself out of those things. You're One, you're competing with players, you're, you're having a finite amount of content, but by virtue of the fact that like we place you in a limited time place, and this is true for most LTEs, um, 
anything you spend in there is isolated to that event and then you go back to your regular gameplay. So you're not permanently affecting or breaking your account. You're having this nice, isolated, fun experience and it's not actually going to affect the long-term uh, way that you play the game. So that's a, it is a much safer way to find, <laughs> to find methods uh, to isolate spend rather than try to perfectly balance a core experience uh, for every player type. I like that a lot. I was actually reading a quote the other day where they said, 50 to 60% of live game revenue comes from live events. In some mm-hmm. games, it's upwards of 80%. Yeah. Um, I, I thought was uh, pretty crazy. Um, so yeah, let, let's, let's dive into that just, you know, real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, so why are time limited events so successful? <laughs> um, so there's going to be some generic ones and some that are more tied to, uh, um, to specific games, but starting generic, you know, the second you say something available, it's only available for a limited time. Immediately there's a sense of urgency that doesn't exist in the rest of the product. Um, you can apply that to content on its own. Like you can only play in this place for this amount of time. You're more likely to play there than elsewhere, but there's also limited time rewards where you can only, you know, you can only get this limited time character or whatever if you're willing to play. So that's again going to heighten engagement and, and heighten spend, gives you a lot of really clear goals as well. So I'll, I like to use AdCap because I think it's actually a really great contrast. AdCap's core blame, gameplay isn't infinite, but it's months and months and months of play. Yeah. But it's really hard to point at a place in AdCap that you want to be. Um, that's probably one of the weaknesses of its design. Like you, you don't get to level 74 in that gap. None of that exists. It's all conceptual. Um, now you compare that to an event and it's like, well, there's an end. There's a theoretical end to an event. And there's also a time space. There's a, I'm going to play for three days. I'm going to try to achieve these things within it. I'm going to unlock all the content, unlock everything that's available, try to get the limited time rewards, fill out that, you know, uh, progress bar, whatever that looks like. Um, and then ultimately, of course, competition at the same time so even after i've gotten my own personal like intrinsic goals there's these extrinsic goals that there's this continuous like i want to stay ahead of this guy or i want to be at the top of the leaderboard um so yeah i think that's that's one of the big parts of it is just yes it's limited yes there's exclusivity but at the same time it, it is making the clearest set of goals to a player um like do you want to pay an ad cap well again we're going to pick you up and put you from day one to day seven what does that mean and some games are much better that in fairness but a person can kind of immediately understand what's going to happen oh if i if i pay here i get all these rewards or i get ahead of this guy or i get access to this content it's the best thing you can have with spend is the clearest possible reason why a person is spending like that's that is like the the thing that everyone needs to learn with monetization is like you want zero <laughs> as close to zero thinking as possible, which sounds terrible, but here I am when a person's I'm hungry, I buy chocolate bar. It's like one of the best things you can ever spend on. It's why they're called impulse purchases. I'm hungry right now, which inspired that example. Um, and that's really simple. But if it's like, well, and I use this example a lot for people, it's like, what if what you were trying to sell was like a vegetable garden? Oh, you're hungry? Okay, cool. Just um, you know, it's plotted an area in your backyard buy some specific fertilizer, Google the instructions, get these different seeds, uh, water them, weed it, watch out for bugs. And in six weeks, you'll have something that you can eat. That is so many more steps and the education required to understand that and the likelihood of the spend in one versus the other is completely incomparable. So that's kind of the lesson is like, you want the simplest thing. If I pay, I get ahead in the leaderboard. If I if I spend, I'm having more fun. Like you want those really short um, mm value propositions essentially yeah i like that a lot um it kind of reminds me of uh, i did a, a presentation 
earlier this year, and I think I actually used a venture capitalist as an example, um, where I said, the closer you can tie that psychological response mm-hmm. to the action, the better it's going to be. So like in venture capitalists, you've got the uh, watch this ad as soon as you come in and you get double the rewards yeah. for everything that you do in here. So simple. Yeah. So simple. And why wouldn't you do that? You're, you're wasting your time if you don't do that, if you're going to play for any amount of time. It's also, uh, as a quick part, the longer you wait, the more valuable that is, which is, which is actually one of the strongest parts of Idol is like any other game, you get that FOMO, like, oh, I haven't played today and I'm falling behind. And in an idle game and in games like AdCap, the longer you have waited, the more valuable your time is when you come back and the more valuable that spend is because it's actually doubling your offline mm-hmm. time. That's awesome. Very cool. Okay, so time-limited events. So let's let's dive into these a little bit more for maybe some of the newer folks or maybe some folks that have come a little bit more from like the hyper-casual space or whatnot. Um, okay, I, I hear all these things that there's most of this money is coming from live events and stuff, but like, what does that mean? And what, what are people actually buying or spending on? Or you maybe give me an example or two of what that looks like and why someone would spend and where they would spend in a, an event. Yeah, I think, um, so I think in, in a lot of ways, the spend in, in most games events are very comparable to the spend in your normal gameplay, but there's just added layers of value. Um, so if you imagine that there's exclusive of, of rewards that are coming off your events, um, well, immediately, yeah, you can, you can pay to progress in your main game and it kind of puts you in a nameless place. But if you pay to progress in an event, you're actually closer to a set of rewards. So in a way, almost every purchase you make is actually a double purchase. And it, it hopefully is fun for all the reasons that are intrinsic to your game, but it also gets me closer to an outcome I want, like a unique reward. That is the same general mentality as the competition side of it. It's like, again, I can pay to progress, which is you know, it is what it is in the normal game. But now if I pay to progress, I'm progressing past people. And maybe there's a double reward there because leading the leaderboard tends to give people rewards on top of things. So a lot of the, a lot of the same spending behaviors can exist, but you are vastly increasing the value and you're time boxing it. It's very easy for people to put off purchases because like with, when there's no time limit, does it matter that you spend this week versus next week? And if you wait till next week, maybe you don't have that spend point anymore. You know, there's, there's no pressure. So the time-sensitive nature basically takes all your normal spending conditions and basically just puts them on steroids. Um, so that's the baseline. And then, of course, the slightly other side of it, and actually one of the greatest values uh, to an event system in general, um, is because of the timeline of nature, you can actually try a lot of stuff that you wouldn't want to put in your core game because people will forgive it immediately. Oh, that's just an event system. Okay, cool. Now we've got a spinny wheel, and the spinny wheel is only available in events. And people like it. Don't be surprised that it becomes a normal thing. But like Clash Royale, 2v2 used to be time limited. It was a, hey, did you know you could try 2v2? And it was so popular. Now it's a core gameplay mode. And they did that in a number of their modes because they tried something new with new interesting monetization opportunities, probably monetized even higher during that event, but also eventually got back to its core gameplay. So mm-hmm. yeah, the, the temporary nature has a lot of power that you can use. I like that. Yeah, I know um, one example that I like to point to, there's a really good article out there um, by a friend of mine. I think it's called like Homescapes is a masterclass in live ops. Hmm. And it, it talks about how um, each week, and it's usually different, um, but on any given week they have, or I think they've found that their players are a little bit less engaged during the week, like Monday oh, yeah. through Thursday. And that makes sense. Um, 
is they probably have mostly like adult females. They probably have jobs and lives and children and different things like that. And so there's just not as much free time for them, right? Um, and so they have some events that run during the week that are very basic and very easy to win. So like if I log in and I play like a game or two, I can get some special rewards for doing that. Um, it's just kind of like a bonus for logging in. So why wouldn't I log in on these days? I think those are more retention oriented. Um, but then you hit Friday, Saturday, Sunday, they've got these like much bigger reward events, much more challenging, like, you know, win 10 games in a row or whatnot. And, you know, they're queued up and you'll actually win relatively easy the first like five <laughs> and then like six and seven get hard and then eight or nine are like nearly impossible. And so you hit that plus five moves, which is the normal spend in homescapes. Right. Mm -hmm. But now if I don't do the plus five moves, I, I see the move is right there queued up for me to do, <laughs> yep. you know, do I want to start over again from, you know, level one, or do I want to pay to just get that reward? And it gets more and more intense as you like reach those final few levels. Um, and that's where they make most of their money from, I think. Um, and then of course, uh, I, so here's a principle I've heard. I'm curious if, if you've heard or done this at all. Um, but actually looking at the data of past events and seeing, okay, um, how far do people actually progress in this event? Let's say I've got 35, you know, levels of rewards in this event that I'm, you know, working towards. Um, do I cater it where, okay, most people are going to end up at level say 25. So I'm going to put something really, really valuable at level 27. Um, and right about level 23, I'm going to trigger a time limited offer. That's going to give them, the stuff that they need now that they realize I'm probably not going to make it to 27, but, Oh, if I get this stuff, I'm going to get there and be able to secure that reward. Um, have you ever heard of something like that and found that it works well? Yeah, it is. Uh, I will say that one, yes, it is, is unclearly is an un questionably a strong um selling point right like anytime you're trying to create a again a very clear goal for a player that they understand themselves and ideally a goal they're setting themselves those tend to work work better um you're going to have an opportunity for a sales point so that is powerful um and of course that is kind of how a lot of game balance works which is you know the better understanding you can have of, of where a player is and what they want at any given time the better you can cater a specific reward to them and you know events by virtue of the fact that everyone starts at the same day, we progress at the same pace. It's so much easier to understand three days of content than 360 days of content, obviously. So they tend to lend themselves better to these more targeted intentional spend points. Um, I will say though, that that specific example um, falls into that kind of dangerous monetization category. Uh, if you have good retention, that's a funny, a funny problem to be, to be considering. Um, but if a person has played this event before, or all your events are kind of balanced like this, uh, you're going to get into a dangerous place because they're going to call you on it. Like when a player says you can only get to rank 27 if you spend, trust me, I've played all day, every day. Um, <laughs> that gets a little rough. Like that, it is, it is the kind of, if a person notices that you're specifically making like, and, and I'm saying this because we've been called out on it in a couple of our events, <laughs> where it's like, oh yeah, you can only do this if you want to spend. They basically made this content is, is incompletable. So yeah, that's that classic balance I talked about earlier, where it's just like, 
your, if you can spend or you can grind and events do not leave you a lot of uh, wiggle room in there. Cause if you can grind, why would you spend? Mm-hmm. And if you can spend, like you're actually in that, that crappy spot again that we talked about, which is now you're out of content. So it's events are, are a lot more hardcore uh, in the sense of their unforgiving nature. No, that totally makes sense. So, you know, would you say for event design that, you know, should you ever design it such that no one can complete it, whether or not they pay or, you know, should you design it looking at like the most engaged users and make sure that if they grind out like they regularly do, they'll finish everything in this event and use that as like the starting point. I think, um, yeah, it's, it's a tricky one. And I'll say that the actual ideal outcome in my mind is actually a slightly different system rather than a slightly different methodology in the sense that like if you have a game and like we're we're, the way our games are balanced we are slaves to this as well in the sense that like we would literally be able to say that it is impossible to get past this point or if you spend you can get to this point Um, i think the lack of variability is kind of the problem there so if a person feels like well if i get lucky i can progress faster um so you know um roguelikes this is a completely random example but i think they illustrate that that very well if you get the right combination of items you're going to zoom through and you can feel that like you know the (laughs) fate is on your side Uh, so even if it's balanced intentionally where if you get mediocre items it'll always take you this amount of time and maybe you can't complete the game with mediocre um maybe you need the best ones and paying would get you the best ones that's a little bit healthier because then a person feels like they're not trapped by the monetization they're not just sitting around knowing well, the event started and I like this game, so I'll play it, but I don't spend, so I know we'll never get there. It's, I hope I kind of like get a little bit lucky this time or something cool happens or the right card gets into my hand, whatever that may be. Because uh, yeah, otherwise to your point, um, it is very dangerous to, to make a game that is absolutely completable by engaged players because it means that the spending players ran out of content on their second day. And then the people who are literally paying to support your game are having the worst experience. So that's definitely something you're always dealing with. Interesting. Uh, one kind of contrary uh, observation that I found, um, and maybe this is just my experience, but I, mm-hmm. I feel like no matter how perfect, you know, you try to balance your economy of like, okay, this is going to be two months worth of content and things like that. And then you got these crazy engaged players that suddenly they decide to play for like 18 hours a day and they like finish it in like two or three days. Um, have you ever run into that sort of situation with, you know, your events or otherwise? Uh, and again, that's such a, a subjective question based on the systems. What I will say is like, uh, now we're going to drift into economy design, but like <laughs> when I, uh, when I start balancing an economy, the first thing I balance for is the control variable essentially, which is like, this is a thing that even if you played 24 hours a day, you could not do more than X, right? So energy systems, for instance, it's a really strong control variable because even if you're getting the most out of it, there's still going to be a, a literal maximum that you can't go beyond, which is I get 25 an hour. So if you know I play an insane amount, the most I can have is whatever the heck 25 times 24 is. Um, so the, I try to start with there uh, because if you make a game where literally if you just keep engaging, you can play longer. First of all, there's a lot of negatives about that because there's proof from data that people should have reasons to stop playing your game and they can actually get exhausted by it and you can actually drown through content too fast. Um, 
but yeah, then then of course you essentially lose control. And and again, a great economy is one where you have a very clear band between like the least engaged and the most engaged players, and then this kind mm. of you know beyond optimal spending players. If that band is so massive based on engagement, you may have just built uh, an economy that's not as tight as it should be. Really, it's hmm. an awesome tip. Okay, so I know we don't have a ton of time left, but uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on you know ad monetization a little bit. So we've talked about uh, in-app purchases and live ops and stuff, you know, what's your take on ad monetization? How and when should it be, you know, implemented? Yeah, it's an interesting one, especially because, um, you know, we've worked so much in the auto genre and there's a lot of games that are almost entirely ad-based and um, it's a nice kind of middle ground um, for players because they don't feel like they're spending, they're basically giving you, they're literally giving you their time in exchange for money, right? Like it is rather than spending a buck, I'm going to watch this ad. So it's the kind of thing that, yes, most people have the time to do it. And you can create a very easy, as you mentioned, value proposition of, hey, you watch this 30 second ad, you double your your value of your login. And people should at that point understand what the value of their login is. So it's an interesting model because it means you're less reliant on IAP. Um, and I'll say the, the boring industry side of things first, which is it is a scary model. Uh, take it on at your own risk because we never know when it's going to be gone. That's one of the biggest realities is Apple tomorrow could theoretically, eh, no more ads. Like we're just, we don't allow integration on our platform. I don't think that's going to happen. It's a massive oversimplification of the challenge, but it also means if you built a game that was 100% reliant on them, even if you just lost iOS and you still had Android, uh, you're still in a, in a terrifying place. So to some extent, use it at your own peril. But when we're talking about trying to use them effectively, um, I don't think they're that different um, from a traditional purchase um, path. You basically want to create a player need, which is, you know, ad, you need money. Money is how you progress. Awesome. Then you create points where they're going to need more money or they're going to produce uh, progress faster with more money. And then you offer them basically that point. If you just watch a video now, you'll go twice as fast or we'll remove a bottleneck is very common in like, a lot of idle games are uh, customer-based or something. So, oh, we'll just double your customers or we'll give you these fancy ones. Just watch an ad. Um, so the most important thing, as with all monetization in my mind, very, very hyper-clear um, uh, value propositions. This is a thing you need. This is how we can give you the thing. It's extremely quick. It's usually you click one button, you watch that ad. There's no going to the store, buying the hard currency, finding the right purchase, using that purchase strategically. It is has the advantage of being very quick and easy. This is a thing you need. Press this button to have it. No wallet, no transactions required. Um, I'd say that's that's mostly it. It's just it does get a little bit trickier once you start talking about um, exploitability, right? Like you can't just like <laughs> give a loot box for every ad and then let them watch as many as they want. Eventually, they run out of content. So they are paired better with games that uh, don't have content restrictions. Yeah. Do you find that? you know, you should try to design a ad placement for like each segment of players? Um, I'll admit that we haven't done that. <laughs> Whether or not we should is an interesting question. Um, I don't know, because the one of the funny things is that like the segments of players change. Like I'll start with the top end. So if a person spends by virtue of the fact that typically ads, by, like they're, they're very simple bonuses, like they double things. So if you're someone who's spent and has like a doubler and a tripler already on, you're already by nature improving the value of those ads. Uh, so there's something interesting to that, but it also decreases, of course, the opposite end, which is if I haven't spent anything or I don't have any consumables, this isn't as valuable. Um, so it is tough to, to build separate systems um, for different players. 
um, especially because you can't guarantee the value of that ad to yourself. Um, you know, different views, uh, anyone who doesn't know, uh, every user who watches ads actually, you know what, I'm not sure about IDFA anymore, but theoretically <laughs> a few months ago, every user had a, an associated value of showing this guy, this ad is worth X amount of money. So anyways, it's without that layer of, of understanding, you could never perfectly optimize the system and say, well, we'll only give the good ads to this person who's a spender at this location and give this value. They're kind of by nature have to be something that's easily accessible to every single player, which makes it a lot more difficult to uh, to make kind of special balances or allowances for different player behavior. Okay, final question on that. I feel like we've talked about so many subjects that we could have like dedicated <laughs> like the whole episode to. So totally. we're gonna have to have you, have you back for sure. Um, but uh, you know, with ads, I know that there are some players that just, I, I will never watch an ad because I don't have time for that. You, so, you know, have you ever seen any success where you have a video placement and beside it, you have, you know, spend five gems or watch the video and get the same thing? Um, I've seen it before. Um, I mean, ads tend to win out pretty drastically. Um, because again, 30 seconds is pretty minimal. Like if you, if you had longer ads, I think that would happen more frequently. Um, but yeah, because that you're making a value proposition even there, right? You're saying that watching this ad is worth 30 seconds of your time and spending X number of gems is worth 30 seconds. So like intent, whether you want to or not, you basically created a, a specific clear conversion ratio of hard currency to time, which is already kind of dangerous. Like you spend a dollar and we're basically willing to give you five minutes of your time for it versus an hour of your time. Um, so yeah, it is, it is tough. I've seen it before. Um, so many people are more people are willing to click ads that it tends to just re like you almost want to use it as price anchoring, like reinforce one or the other. Like, oh, it's just one gem and then you can save 30 seconds. That's pretty valuable because it's actually just using the, it's actually intentionally trying to disincentivize the ad or vice versa. <laughs> you want your ads up, oh, it's 30 gems or an ad. You're like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm just, this is worth 30 seconds of my time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, hoping for either purchase, like in kind of equal ratio um, is tough. I wouldn't know. I think you'd have to be very subjective about what you were trying to achieve with that offer. Yeah, I've actually seen it increase revenue by like five to 10% because there was a certain segment of players that would never watch an ad, but they did like that. Now they can get what those ad viewers would get. Otherwise they would just bypass it. Um, so interesting stuff. Okay. Well, I know we're, we're basically out of time here. So I have one last question for you and that is, uh, you know, what's one tip or trick you've learned over the years to help, uh, boost retention. Yeah. Um, just the biggest question ever in this small amount of time. So yeah, just teach us. <laughs> um, I mean, I'll, I'll try to give us a relatively simple answer. Uh, stick to your funnel. Um, there's, yes, there's a thousand things you can do in the long term, but you're never going to have more of your potential player base. And that the, the rationale you should use is um, your goal should be that every player who can love your game should get to the point where they've decided that they love your game. So use that as an anchor point. So if only 20% of your people, like if your D1 is 20%, maybe the answer is you have a perfect Fatui. Like we actually have a game like this, which is hilarious, is we've improved individual tutorial steps and the same number of people come back the next day, which is actually like an interesting indicator that we're, we're probably getting all the right people through. Um, but yeah, I mean, the it's not a simple trick, but yeah, get the most possible data fidelity you can for that Fatui funnel. Know exactly what they're doing. If you have to put them on rails to do it, no one likes it, but you might need to because you want to know exactly where a person is when they stop playing so that you can play detective, figure mm -hmm. out why and fix it. Because that is that is really 
all the Fatui funnel is is getting to play game design detective and say, okay, actually, you know, this button isn't obvious or, and you know, then you replay and you go to that exact spot and you say, oh, actually, I don't see the thing I'm supposed to click on or I need another arrow. So not a super cool, quick, easy tip, um, but live in your funnel uh, and know, have as much data as possible. And when your data team tells you that's too much, ask for more anyway, and just keep pushing for the maximum possible fidelity so that you can say with as close to crystal clarity as possible, this is why people are leaving at this stage. I'm going to fix it. Love it. Well, Rumi, this has been so great. Thank you so much for joining us. Hope you have a, a great rest of your day. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me.